Hi folks, Patrick here. Welcome back to Bibliology. This is the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its theological implications for communities of faith today. Today on the show, you'll get to hear a very interesting discussion I had recently with Dr. Jennifer Bashaw from Campbell University on the topic of the gospel through the eyes of victims. Jennifer's new book, Scapegoats, is out now, and I've linked it in the description for anyone curious. Jennifer is, of course, um, Assistant Professor of New Testament and Christian Ministry at Campbell, and some of her areas of interest include biblical hermeneutics, homiletics, spiritual formation, and religion and pop culture. Her book has a fascinating lens uh, through which it views political theology, especially in an American and perhaps even broader Western context. And of course, at the heart of Jennifer's analysis are the social theories and concepts of René Girard. Now, Christians tend to take a more maximal and uh, supernatural view of theology in general and the atonement especially than Girard does. So I don't know what to do with all of his theology, but his... um, Political and social thought, I think, really provides us with an interesting way of viewing current political issues in the church and the wider world, and I hope you all will get some food for thought uh, from this conversation as we ponder the ways that Christians have scapegoated various groups and what we can do to um, heal that by looking at the Gospels. Um, Without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Hello. Thank you for having me. Okay. We're, of course, going to be speaking about your book, Scapegoats, the Gospel Through the Eyes of Victims. And um, we're going to be speaking about the content of the book. Very, very interesting, Um, especially for someone who's non-American. You know, it's it's very much interacting with um, the American way. And it's just fascinating, you know, as an outsider, you know, um, uh, getting a glimpse in at that. But... um, before, you know, we get to the the specifics, you know, I suppose the audience would love to get to know you a bit personally and um, ready for some uh, for some fun questions then? Yeah. All right. So one thing I noticed uh, reading your book was that um, you're um, you are Hispanic, aren't you? Yes. Um, yes. So um, like to what extent you consider yourself culturally Hispanic um, do you and your family speak in Spanish amongst yourselves? Do you have siestas and everything like that or? Um, what what would you say to that? Yeah, I love this question, by the way, because I, people don't usually ask me about that. I think because my maiden name is not always there. Garcia is my maiden name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't they don't know that part of me. So I love this question. Um, I grew up in a Mexican family um, in Texas. And so if you actually trace back our um, ancestors, they were in Texas when it was Mexico. So like we've always been bilingual um, for a really long time, except this generation. So my generation did not mostly did not learn Spanish. And it's because our parents generation, when they would go to school um, in South Texas, they were trying to keep the kids from speaking Spanish. And so they would hit them on the hands with rulers when they would speak Spanish. And so I just feel like that they got this idea that that they shouldn't speak Spanish and then they shouldn't teach their kids to speak Spanish, Um, you know, and also there's this assimilation thing like they wanted us to, you know, look more white and speak more white and everything. So um, they didn't teach us Spanish, but it's that's 
only one part of culture. So we grew mm-hmm. up, of course, with uh, Mexican culture and family reunions and all all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I do speak a little bit of Spanish, but I was not I did not use it at home. My dad also married someone who was not a Spanish speaker. So that mm-hmm. that is also a reason why we didn't speak Spanish at home. OK, OK. No, that's interesting. And this is um, this something occurred to me like. Spanish, like Mexican um, theology, you know, there tends to be like kind of like a liberationist um, wing of that. Yeah. Um, and like reading your book, you know, the, you get like little hints of that. I'm wondering, was that at all part of your upbringing or? Not theologically, but yeah. I think because of the way we think about society and think about people, there was like a ground laid, like a foundation so that when I started reading liberation, uh, theology later, it really resonated with me. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Okay. That is interesting. Yeah. Getting on to that topic more specifically, like what book of the Bible have you read the most and the least and why? Yeah. Uh, I think that it would have to be one of the gospels that I've read the most. Um, probably John, even though my dissertation was on Matthew, um, I, I wanted to study John, the gospel of John first. And I tend to do a lot of reading and preaching out of John. Um, And I'm actually writing a commentary on John right now um, for the Bible for normal people, actually. You know, they they put out they they put out some commentaries. So they have Genesis for normal people and Exodus for normal people. And so I'm doing John for normal people. So, okay, okay, Yeah. (laughs) So John would be at the least. uh, It's a hard one. I would probably say Jude. Really? <laughs> Second Peter or Jude, I, I would guess. Um, like sometimes when I'm teaching, I teach New Testament. Um, you know, if we run out of time or something, I will barely touch on Second mm. Peter and Jude. Okay. <laughs> so so you've read even Obadiah more than Jude. I but maybe. I mean it's 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 likely. I did do some Old Testament study, even though my PhD was in New Testament, but um I I like the the prophets. Mm-hmm. So I do tend to read them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of political theology in there. So mm, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And um, one thing um, I I noticed um, just by you know I try to I try to um, you know uh, learn a bit about my uh, speakers, and I noticed um, I went on your Twitter and it said that you identify as an um, ex-evangelical. I think that's sort of like an American phrase, um, yeah. really. So. Um, probably not all of the people on the um i think it, it means that you don't consider yourself evangelical specifically anymore am i correct yeah so yeah. i grew that, that usually means you you grow up in an evangelical tradition in evangelicalism and then you have maybe moved away from that um okay. that's a lot of people will call themselves ex-evangelical if they do that but you know i still very much operate in evangelical circles <laughs> right Yes. So it has to do with the definitions really of, well, it has to do with two things, the definitions of evangelical and that I don't fit them very well anymore. And and then also some of the mm, horrible things that evangelicals have been doing um, in the last couple of decades, um, you know, it makes me want to not identify myself with them as much. (laughs) There are lovely, lovely evangelicals, of course. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And uh, I would say like, um, 
I I'm an evangelical by European standards, mm. but but I'm not sure if I went over to America if I would be considered like fully evangelical because it's interesting when I read books. Um, for example, I was recently reading a book. I think it was like a Zondervan counterpoints volume, mm. and it was about heaven and. One of the authors said he was defending the the traditional evangelical perspective, and it was actually the rapture. Wow! Like you know, not very many evangelicals over here. I don't think the majority would hold that as a traditional view. So you know, it's a it's a, it's a really a complex like um, geographical thing as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, and political as well. Yeah. More so lately, but no, actually, it's been political all along. We're just getting to understand um, how much how how much politics and evangelicalism have been um, intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now it becomes, it's really more of a cultural term, I would say, than a, than a yeah. theological term. So that's the other reason why I don't usually identify myself as evangelical. Right, right, right enough. And of course, Twitter, where, where I saw this, is of course the place where it's mostly cultural commentary, you know, for the most part. So, you know, makes right. sense. Yeah. yeah, I don't go around introducing myself as an evangelical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right enough. Okay, and um, you know, maybe like, what are what are like some features of this tradition that you think you'd like you have maintained? Do you think? Uh, probably the the emphasis on the Bible and the importance or centrality of the Bible um, would be what I still align with. Um, and I, because I hold the Bible in high regard, doesn't mean I read the Bible like evangelicals do <laughs> necessarily. But um, yeah, I definitely hold the Bible um, to be a standard for Christian life, and I love to read it and study it. So, so that lines up pretty well. Um, but I'm not like evangelicals tend to be con- conversionists, or they they place a high value on a conversion experience, and I've kind of moved away from that. Um, as I am introduced to other faith traditions, right. That don't have conversionism in them. Um, and then there's, uh, what they would call crucicentrism, um, a very much focus on the cross. Um, Mm -hmm. I would probably change that for me to Christocentrism. So focusing on Jesus's life, ministry, death, and resurrection, not just, not just the the cross. So Mm -hmm. kind of just throwing this out there, but I suppose, the reason that I would probably tend more towards crucicentrism is that if you get to like 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, Paul doesn't seem to talk much about the the life. You know, it seems to be just everything, uh, the other side of his death, you know, so. Mm-hmm. But but I understand, you know, it's, it's an interesting tension that tends to exist between that and the gospels and you kind of have to think through it i guess you know don't exactly you? and i definitely side if if there's going to be a point of contention i will side with the gospel writers rather than paul but we don't have to do that all the time we can hold both of them together but sure, if we're sure. gonna get the emphasis uh that i prefer is more on the gospels so yeah, yeah. hi guys patrick here just uh butting in in real time just to say yeah i think i probably didn't phrase that very well and it was probably a little bit misleading i mean i think there's a lot more overlap between how paul views the life of jesus and how the gospels view his life than i was maybe giving credit for um and obviously i left that in because it was part of the conversation so but um yeah i would definitely nuance that differently going forward um 
so sorry about that. Um, I'm still, I would still lean more towards Christocentrism, but but yeah, I definitely have to nuance that a bit differently in future. It's a great joy being a Christian, holding it all together. With, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Together, yeah. We'll maybe get on to speaking about some of the you know, specifics about your book. So um, to begin with, you know, the if anyone wants to get the best out of your book, they'll need to understand the idea of scapegoating. And um, perhaps one way of setting the stage is to ask, you know, to what extent are the terms scapegoat and victim synonymous? And given their face value similarity, what would what would lead you to prefer using the, the former term? Yeah, so this is, um, I think, an important distinction to make. Um, but let's see, I think victim would be more of a blanket term that would refer to people who have been harmed by individuals or systems. Um, scapegoat fits under that category of victim, um, but it's a particular kind of victim. Uh, so scapegoats, and this is based on the work of Gerard and others, Rene Gerard, um, scapegoats in ancient societies, if we go all the way back, um, they were the people, they were people who were kind of existed on the periphery um, of society and they were chosen for sacrifice or chosen to be expelled, um, to put to be um, driven out of the society, uh, in order to alleviate uh, violence that threatened the society. So that's like this is kind of at the heart of Gerard's theory. Um, and so I am focusing on people who are scapegoats. Um, they are also victims as well. Um, but what, what makes them different than all victims is that they have been chosen um, because sort of the the sin and violence of a society um, is laid on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so either they're they're kicked out of the society or they're killed. This is in the ancient societies. Um, it, because of the of the violence that's sort of rising in a society. Um, now, that gets to be a little different when you get later on in, uh, in time. We don't tend to sacrifice people anymore. Um, not at least, uh, I mean, we, we do it more um, covertly. Oh, well, we do in Ireland. Human sacrifice is a huge thing, of course. No, no. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So there, are, there is human sacrifice. No, um, no. But so <laughs> the way it, it it changed over time is it be, it it became more of like blaming certain people in society so that society can kind of continue on in the way that it is with the people in power who are in power. Um, and so, of course, those people who um, blame and shame. Um, is kind of laid on them, then they become scapegoats. Um, they are also, of course, victims of society, but specifically um, because they're on the periphery, they they take a lot of the blame of the sins of society or other people. Okay, right. So that's a helpful clarification. And this um, theory is associated, of course, primarily with Gerard. And um, he seems to be someone you've devoted a lot of time to researching. He's kind of one of your um, areas of expertise. Um, and what something I'm curious, like what what was Gerard's personal relationship to Christianity, and um, do you think he has any other insights about religion that Christians would do well to heed? Yeah, Gerard's story is is really fascinating. He uh, would have identified as agnostic at some point. Um, he was a literary critic first. Well, I think he was a historian first, and then he became a literary critic, and so he's doing work. Um, 
in ancient literature and modern literature and all these things. And so as he starts to study literature, he starts seeing patterns um, that he wants to study in human society. And so then he kind of becomes a cultural anthropologist. Um, he starts looking at ancient societies and their literature. And um, eventually he makes his way to the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. And he reads through these. And in his reading of the Bible, he ends up um, becoming a Christian. So um, so it's interesting that he wasn't, and then he was, and it's really his work that led him to that, um, which is kind of fascinating. You don't see that in academia very often. Um, mm. So yeah, so he, he, he was a Christian before he died. Um, and a lot, I mean, people who study him, some of them are Christians and some of them aren't like, it kind of depends on what direction they take his, um, take his work. So, um, but yeah, he was a Christian. So that's his relationship to Christianity. Um, but by the time he died, he had written on all different kinds of religion and also on Christianity, especially, um, in his work on the Bible, his whole system really, I think is, is helpful uh, for Christians because, you know, he talks about the, the human tendency towards violence. And the first thing is towards mimesis or mimetic desire. So we desire, um, what other people have and then also what other people are and then that desire um causes conflict between people individuals and then it causes sort of mass conflict in society um and then that mass conflict have to has to be alleviated and he suggests that religion was formed religion you know in the broad sense was formed in order to alleviate religion i mean alleviate violence in society and so that religious theory um for some Christians, I think is fascinating for other Christians. I think, I don't think they appreciate it that much because, um, that they, they, then it kind of says, Oh, religion is human created. And I think a lot of people would like to, a lot of Christians would like to say, I don't know, religion is God created or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I think just that whole framework, uh, is helpful. And also his reading of scripture is pretty interesting. Um, in the way he sees how throughout the Hebrew Bible um, stories are told from the perspective of the victims and not the, not the people who are in power, uh, which I think is interesting. And really the whole story of Israel is about this, um, you know, s- s- small people group who, who is very often victims, you know, of violence yeah. and war and slavery and things like that. Um, and so that's a really interesting um religious theory to kind of read through the Hebrew um, Bible with. And then, of course, when when Gerard gets to the Gospels, he he basically says the Gospels are the most revelatory literature that we have. <laughs> like that, the Gospels actually show us uh, about the scapegoat Jesus, and he it revealed this system of scapegoating to us that we that operated um, unconsciously. And so now that we've we know about the system, we can beat the system. Is kind of what he says. Mm-hmm. So. The, the fact that he places the gospel so high is a pretty interesting um, way to look at the Bible, uh, especially for, for Christians who, which you've all already illustrated today, tend to focus on Paul. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's a good, you set me up really well. On yeah. that one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, getting back to something you, you said about, you know, um, his, his theories involve kind of, you know, 
looking at the human side of things very much so. And um, one one criticism I've heard of Gerard is that his theory, you know, implies that, you know, ancient Israelites or earliest Christians, whoever they were just simply projecting their sins onto the object of sacrifice. And that that sort of just, he many would say that that strips the supernatural component of atonement in Old and New Testament. And, um, you know, you, you and your book do... Um, give an endorsement of non-sacrificial understandings of the atonement. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that is, but um, <laughs> um, like, how do you think that's a fair criticism of Gerard or um, how, how would you defend him if, if not? Yeah. The people who would bring that criticism against Gerard, I think have a, a pretty narrow view of what scripture is. Like they would probably say, um, well, everything in the Bible, you know, comes straight from God or something like that. Um, but if you recognize that humans are involved in the writing of scripture, then it's really not that much more a bigger step to say, oh, and maybe humans were involved in shaping this religion, you know? Um, and so if we focus on the human element and atonement, which is, which is what Gerard does, um, I think it's, to me, it has a much better foundation because these are things that we can observe. Like we can look at the literature and we can hear what humans think and we can see how they um, created systems and things like that. We don't, we can't, we don't understand, we can't understand God <laughs> fully, you know, the things we even mediated, the things that we know in the Bible are mediated through human beings. And so that's why I like what he does, because he's a literary critic. So he's looking at the literature and what it tells us about humans. And it, and we can, you know, infer some things about God um, as well. But, but I think it's much more concrete to say, okay, what can we learn from the literature about how humans mm-hmm. um, went about doing sacrifice and atonement and things like that. And so then when we get to the New Testament and they start using language from Old Testament sacrifice, um, we tend to take it, Christians in general tend to take it very literally, um, but very much of it is metaphorical. And it's probably even in the Old Testament, there's a lot of metaphor involved. And so that's why I just think we're on more solid ground when we're talking about, okay, what did the humans do? What did Israel do in this situation? Not, oh, this is what God is doing. Like I, I tend to shy away from saying I know what God is doing or thinking or you know whatever what God wants, things like that. So uh, that's what I appreciate about Gerard. Um, that is that he recognizes that there are things that we don't know. So let's talk about what we can know. You okay. Know? Yeah. yeah. So like if if someone were to ask you. Um, to give like mechanics of the atonement, would you be like hesitant to do that? Like there's not really a mechanics of a scapegoat theory of atonement or how, what would you say? Well, so I, I mean, I can tell it to you in Girardian terms. Um, <laughs> I, I would definitely have a more of a amalgamation of uh, uh, t- different theories and different pictures when I talk about atonement, because mm-hmm. there are so many different metaphors in the New Testament about, about atonement. But um, Gerard would say that the way we are saved um, is through the cross, is because Jesus died on the cross, um, and also... Uh, that the Gospels told Jesus' story in a way that helped us understand why he died, that he died as a scapegoat, like many other scapegoats have died before. Um, And the fact that they highlight Jesus' innocence 
in this is like the peeling back of the curtain um, on human um, violence and human scapegoating. Now that we know Jesus was innocent and then we watch all these powers kind of come against him in society to kill him, um, it's like an awareness or a revelation or whatever you want to call that, um, that we need to be saved from ourselves. Like we are the ones that are destroying ourselves. So we need to be saved from that. Um, and that's the atonement. We're not saved from God's wrath or, you know, we're not saved from the devil and the, and Satan or whatever, that we are saved from ourselves. So that's what he would say. I mean, I wouldn't take only Gerard when I'm talking about atonement. I would use his theory and I would talk about Chris's Victor and some other things as well. But that's what Gerard would mm-hmm. say um, mm-hmm. with, with his atonement theory. Mm-hmm. So you would be... So you would like when you say Chris is Victor, you, would you take the um, the the supernatural aspect of that as well, or would you f- frame it in more? Um, what was the name of that theologian who had like a really weird view of um, of uh, the principalities and powers? Like uh, his name's gone off the top of my head. Walter but, uh, Wink. Yes, that's him. That's him. Mm, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I'm okay with the supernatural elements. Um, again. I would rather talk about the human elements because those are what I can see and uh, explain and understand. Um, so I would be okay with lots of what Walter Wink says um, because he says there are all these human systems on earth um, that, you know, the spiritual forces of evil and darkness are manifested in. Um, and I think that's true. Uh, and so, but I would point to the systems that we can see And we can do something about and say these, yes, these are the things that we need saving from, which, which in the end are human systems, right? Right, right. Okay. But there, I I think there are supernatural forces behind it. I just know nothing of that. I have not seen them. I have not interacted with them in a way that I could describe them. And so then I will focus on the the human aspects. Yeah. I definitely think um, N.T. Rice is one person who does a good job of putting the human and uh, yeah. the supernatural together. So, you know, if people want to know about Chris's Victor, that's like both human and mm-hmm. well, human and divine, well, fallen divine. Fallen, <laughs> some, okay. Yeah, in some respect, they should definitely, yeah, check him out. But um, mm-hmm. enough about the atonement for now. Uh, one, one thing that like helps your book stand out is um, the incorporation of first-person narrative you know, um, where you write as one of the scapegoats that Jesus encounters and assists. Um, I especially like the um, the one about, uh, you, you write about the widow who was uh, burying her son, you know. Yeah. Um, that was, I, I really, really like that one. Um, but, um, you know, what are some benefits of utilizing this, you know, kind of writing in an otherwise non-fictional work, do you think? Yeah, I... I often use first person narratives in sermons in my preaching. And I think what it does is it creates a sense of empathy um, in the person, in the people who are hearing it, or in this case, reading it. Um, Cause I don't think that Western Christians do a good job of identifying with characters from ancient literature. Like we're so culturally separated from them. Um, their values are so different than ours. And, um, and so I think that, 
especially Americans, because I can speak on behalf of Americans, um, we we can't identify very well with these um, with these characters in the stories. And so I try to describe their feelings in a way that overlaps with, of course, our feelings, but then also um, tell the story in a way that the cultural background um, and all the different parts of the story that we may not understand are is illuminated. Um, so that's why I use the first person perspective because it, it kind of immerses people into the story. Um, and also when, when you hear someone talking about their own experience, like you're kind of more open, I think, to listening to the details of their life and then maybe identifying with the things that they've learned or the experiences that they had um, or whatever. Really what I think it does is it shrinks that distance between the ancient times and the, and the contemporary times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I love, love to do it. And um, yeah, I also think academic books can be a little dry. Um, and so that's why I wanted to put some, um, a relief from all the information and just say, okay, let's experience, um, the story mm-hmm. for a second, because some people that's the way they learn, you know, you can't throw a lot of facts at them, um, or arguments and, and, and expect them to connect to what you're saying. You have to have them experience it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, connecting to both left brained and right brain people even though that's like a folk psychology category obviously but right yes but that's one way to frame it exactly yeah and i i especially liked how you know sometimes like the little phrase you use it'll like um it'll like just stir up these kind of echoes in your mind to like things that you can definitely relate to for instance Mm -hmm. you know in your story when you were talking about you know the widow who's who's burying her her son and then Jesus comes along and saves them you know you mentioned from the widow's perspective that no mother should ever have to bury her son you know mm-hmm. and that just made me think of um have you seen Lord of the Rings yes yes the in the in the two towers where yes. Theoden is in front of the the tomb and he just breaks down you know after saying no no parent should ever have to bury their child and you know I just watched that two weeks ago and I read, I realized when he said that, I said, I said that in my, in my story. I'm like, did I get it from here? (laughs) You never know sometimes when you're influenced by some, some um, piece of pop culture or literature or something. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that scene is just, you know, it's It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Before we move on to looking at some um, specific examples you discuss in the book, um, could you give an example of an, erroneous or problematic interpretation that arises when we view the New Testament through our our victor context because you know let's face it we're in the western world and right, right. we're for the most part we're victors um yeah so one example that I give in the book um is that we as Christians western Christians um tend to read the infancy narrative in Matthew um like through the eyes of Mary and Joseph, like we're Mary and Joseph, right? Okay, we're we're the parents of Jesus, you know, we're religious people, whatever. Um, and so we would imagine maybe, oh, okay, well, if we were in this situation, surely we would have, you know, opened our homes to Mary and Joseph if in Bethlehem or when they had to flee to Egypt that we would take care of them because we identify with them or something. Um, but we don't realize that in our context, um, especially in an American context, like we are the ones who are keeping immigrants out of our country. We're like Herod 
(laughs) instead of like Mary and Joseph, you know? So we miss the contours of that story because um, we don't see who, who we really are, who are our counterparts, right? Mm -hmm. In the story. We think that we're the victims, but we're, we're the victors, which makes us the villains in the story. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing, but there are lots of examples, um, of that. Uh, we, we miss, um, a lot of the sort of revolutionary aspects of Jesus's ministry, because we're not thinking like people who are poor or people who are marginalized or anything like that. We just think, Oh, the stuff that Jesus is doing is would benefit. It benefits us. But more likely, it would take something away from us. <laughs> it benefits people who are um, the victims in society, not not the victors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'd probably want to emphasize this, you know, that Jesus definitely does interact compassionately with victors as well. You know, not, he d- oh. doesn't because, you know, you think of like uh, Zacchaeus, like is one example, you know, this is a tax collector. This is a guy who, you know, tramples the poor under his foot and Jesus is sound with them you know that's the phrase we use in irish by the way we say, oh that person's sound you know it means ah, they're, yeah. they're, they're nice you know yeah and um, but you know that there are definitely examples of that as well aren't there there yeah. are but i wouldn't i don't know if i would use the Achaeus example because he was ha- very much hated in his society and so there is a, a something about jesus reaching across to someone that's he that's hated and welcoming him in but yes of course jesus um you know, heals the, heals the centurion son and things like that. So yeah, he does it. Jesus shows love, um, and welcoming to all people, but it's so much more radical in his society and in ours <laughs> to, to show that equal, maybe even a little bit more, um, welcoming and love to those people who, um, have normally been, um, shunned or marginalized or outcast or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Part one of your book looks at women as scapegoats in the Gospels. And um, maybe a way of getting at this is to ask which story that you discuss in your analysis do you think best encapsulates the, the scapegoat concept and um, the response of Jesus to it and, and why? Yeah, so I think... I actually just preached a sermon on this at a church that wanted me to explain scapegoats. Um, I I do think the story of the woman saved from stoning is a good example of scapegoating. Um, Because you have this scapegoating group of people, which the author tells us they are trying to trap Jesus. And we know that Jesus is innocent. So you already see them sort of um, going to to scapegoat Jesus. Like that's kind of, he's kind of the first scapegoat. This is, um, this is in John 10. Is it just a curse? John eight. Mm-hmm. John, John eight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but then um, they accuse this woman of a sexual sin to get the crowd sort of against her. Cause you know, this is in public, lots of people around. Um, also her partner in crime is not there. So she's there's it's not like they're holding two people accountable for some sin. Right. They're they've chosen one per, a person and they're going to, um, you know, blame her and um, and scapegoat her. So then we have really two two scapegoats in that story. Um, we have Jesus. 
And this is one way I think you can build the story to, to show us that Jesus ends up being the scapegoat because they're trying to get him, um, get the crowd to turn against him and eventually, you know, get him out of the, out of the picture. Um, but she's also a scapegoat as well. Um, they're ready to stone her, right? They, they're kind of asking Jesus, you know, what should we do? Abraham says that we should stone her, right? Mo- sorry, Moses, Moses is law said we should stone her. Um, and it's actually quite common for scapegoating mobs in the ancient world to stone scapegoats because it was a way of making sort of the whole community responsible for this killing. So it's not like one person is killing one person. It's like there there's blame is all around or there's no blame at all because you, everybody stones or nobody knows who actually kills the person. So the fact that it's a it's a stoning case it also makes it um, a good example of um, scapegoating, and it's a, it would be a communal act, right? It wouldn't be um, an execution by one person or something like that. Uh, but then we see Jesus stopping this scapegoating mob um, by sort of calming the scene down. Like he gets down and he 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 writes in the in the ground, and so he takes the focus off of the woman which all their focus is on her, right? Because we want to stone her. Um, and then takes the focus off of her. And then he says, you know, if you, those of you who are without sin can can cast the first stone. And so then he puts the focus on themselves. And so they're, now they can't like put all their blame um, on this woman. They He's kind of calmed the scene and then had them self-analyze. Like, no, let's see, maybe the sin is in you. <laughs> And not, we don't want to punish this woman for, for, uh, for sin when there's actually sin inside you as well. So there's a lot of things going on, um, in that story. I think that makes it a good example also because women have all have always been the sexual scapegoats of society, you know? So, um, that's another reason I think it's a good example. Yeah. And just as you were saying that there, you know, it just occurred to me for the first time, yeah, where was the male adulterer in all of this? <laughs> that's you know, right. I never considered that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that and that's key. I mean, I think that's key to the story. Um, and that's key to making it like a revelatory story for us to do. Oh, we do this. <laughs> we <laughs> actually do tend to put the blame on a woman in a situation. Um, and and so it's it's it helps yeah. us who we are. In fact, um, so I call it the woman saved from stoning. All throughout church history, people have called it the woman caught in adultery. That's like the title of the story, which is hilarious to me, not in a good way, uh, but because Jesus, the whole time, Jesus is trying to take the focus off of her and we put the focus back on her with our title, right? Um, and the, I decided in the end, like this sermon that I wrote a couple weeks ago, is that we should call it the woman who shows us who we are. <laughs> and then we're doing exactly what the story is doing, right? We're taking the focus away from her and then putting it on us. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose the the modern parallels, you know, that it would be things like, you know, labeling women as stumbling blocks when really the stumbling block is exactly. yourself, that kind of thing. Is that what you're thinking of? Exactly. Yes. Um you know, just a couple of days ago, the full report came out on Southern Baptists um, here in America and how many pastors and youth pastors and all this um, were sexually assaulting um, all, all sorts of people, but definitely lots of young women. And they would not when the women would come forward, 
um, they either wouldn't believe them or they would put the blame on them or, you know, like, so this is still happening today and it, and it causes more suffering um, and more victims because yeah. we, we continue to put blame where it does not belong. You know, I suppose you definitely, I definitely don't want to, to want to argue with, uh, with, with your analysis because I think it's really important, you know, what you say about that story. But one thing I would wonder is, you know, is the term scapegoat the, the correct one? Because um, Jesus does say, does say go and sin no more. So, you know, he does think she's guilty of sin. So I suppose scapegoat would kind of convey innocence in a respect. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, so this this is a really good question that you asked because um, it's an important point to make about scapegoats. Um, of course, n- no scapegoat is totally innocent, right? <laughs> if we mm-hmm. believe that all people sin, right? Yeah. Um, but but Gerard will say their innocence, guilt or innocence, is beside the point. We have to look at the system and what's happening here. Um, but even after saying that, I will say about this story, um, why do we assume that when Jesus tells her to go and sin no more, that he he is implicating her in this particular sin. Why do we think that? Because he says it earlier in John 5 when he heals the man by the pool at the after he uh heals him he says go and sin no more. Exactly the same thing. But we don't say oh this man must have been a sinner or he did something to deserve his you know that he can't walk or something like that. We don't tend to do that, right? But uh, mm-hmm. again, I think we are interpreting this story through the lens of um, our um, habit of of assuming women's guilt when it comes to sexual sexual things, and, it, and the other thing that really is funny about the story. So the, the 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 religious leaders drag this woman before Jesus and accuse her, but they've we've already established in the story that they have a motive and that they're deceptive because they're about to try to trap Jesus. So why do we believe them? <laughs> when they say it, you know what I'm saying? Like we just get sucked in to this Mm. cycle of blame. Um, when the story, Jesus does not say she is guilty of that particular sin. Right. Um, and we go ahead and just believe the religious leaders, even though they're already deceiving Jesus, why would we not think they were, you know, they're, they're deceiving him about, about Mm -hmm. this woman. So, yeah, but, but even if she were guilty, we don't know. Um, scapegoats, don't have to be completely innocent, um, but usually they are innocent of the particular crimes that they are accused of. This in throughout history, that's kind of what happens, um, right? So go back to immigrants. Um, you know, are, are so many of the immigrant immigrants that want to come into our country like drug dealers and rapists? No, they are not guilty of those sins. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so when we ask the question, but aren't they guilty? Then we're just getting caught up in the scapegoating trap again. You know what I'm saying? Right enough. Yeah. Okay. Again, this is why the story is so helpful in thinking about scapegoating. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, of course, believe this story is canonical, not to get too deep into that rabbit trail. but <laughs> I do. I do believe um, that it is an authentic tradition from Jesus's life, um, mm-hmm. though I don't believe it was in this spot originally. Like yeah. we have a lot of manuscripts where in, it, it shows up in different places in John, it shows up in Luke and some other places. Um, but what I think happened, and this is just a guess, <laughs> mm-hmm. is that it um, 
the early Christians, this was such a central story. It was so important to them. Um, it was something that that was an important tradition from Jesus's life that they wanted it in the gospels. Mm-hmm. And so they, they tried to figure out a place where it would go. And then they end up putting it wherever they think was best. But yeah, it's always so difficult with those little, um, like, you know, you can count them on one hand, you know, the number of texts that are like, like that, where you have like an extended um, narrative that doesn't seem to appear in the original manuscripts. But right. I, I always have a weird relationship with them because I'm like, oh, yeah, John, John, a., oh, yeah, that's definitely canonical. But then when it comes to like Mark 16, like the long ending, I'm like, I don't know if I want to think that's, <laughs> you know, so it's yeah. such a messy uh, conversation. It is messy with the Mark one, but, you know, there are other yeah. reasons to not um, to not think Mark is the original ending. I mean, because there are different, you know, different endings doesn't match and all these things. It, Maybe it's still important, but you know. Yeah, yeah. People didn't like the like the abrupt ending of Mark for whatever reason. Yeah, but I like it. <laughs> Me too. I yeah. like it a lot. Yeah. Moving on to something else, you know, part of your thesis is that we still treat women in in the same ways today. So, um, practically speaking, what do you think is the the antidote to this? Yeah, so it has. I guess it has to start on a personal level, or maybe um, I would say a church level. I mean, this is the reason why I wrote the book, um, so that churches, people in churches, would read it. Um, but the number one thing with uh, making sure that we don't create scapegoats is to recognize that we scapegoat. <laughs> so if we can recognize and say, get it out there um, in society, and say we scapegoat women. Right. And these are the ways that we do it. What we just talked about with um, with uh, Southern Baptist, with, you know, whatever women should dress a certain way as to <laughs> to not tempt their their brothers or whatever. Like we can give examples um, to people so that they can start recognizing when it's happening because it does become so unconscious. Um, and so that's kind of the first personal church level but then we have to start looking at how this plays out on a on a larger scale in our society you know and we need to see how you know women suffer social and economically socially and economically more than men do um, because of our policies because you know women getting paid less than men you know women shouldering the burden of covid you know that many more women lost their jobs and things like that than men or they had to leave their jobs because of the way our society is structured we put the um, onus on women to carry families or whatever you know so there are so many little ways um that we scapegoat women and so we have to recognize them talk about them and and then figure out how we can change that it's it's a, it would be a slow change of course um because this is scapegoating of women has been happening for mm-hmm. as long as there have been humans so <laughs> yeah yeah and you know something that um comes up you know a lot in these discussions of you know how can we stop scapegoating women is the question of you know um christian christian women aren't the only people who believe this there are also you know secular secular women who consider themselves um feminists and such like this and my question is like to what extent should christians and those who call themselves christian feminists stand together with with secular feminists do you think Mm-hmm. When I think where our goals overlap, we should stand with them. And they do overlap quite a bit. I mean, um, if I call myself a biblical feminist, um, I want to 
make life better for women and fight for equality for women because of what I see in Jesus's life in the gospels, right? So it's based on the Bible. And also, you know, our anthropology in the Bible is that we were all created in the image of God. So um, our basis for my basis for why I am a feminist is the Bible. Um, Secular feminists may not have that same basis, but we have the same goals. Um, We want to make sure that women um, achieve equality in all different areas of society. Um, And so I think we can work together um, in those areas uh, because we want the same thing for women. Just, we may have different reasons, um, but we together, we can make change for, for women in society. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, you know, to to use a like a, a an example that maybe the more um, conservative people in the audience can maybe relate to would be that, um, take for instance, in like America, people who are pro-life, you know, um, and, and I'm pro-life as well, <laughs> just to show my colors, but people in America who are pro-life, they have no problem uniting with secular people who are pro-life, you know. So it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. That, yeah. You know, you have like we should have no Christian feminists should have no problem uniting with feminists who are secular. You know, yes. in that sense, yeah, because yeah. it's a common common goal, right? That's the absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My question to to conclude would be, and this is kind of one that I've just come up with, is in light of what you've you've said about Paul and and all that. Do you think Paul has anything interesting to say about scapegoating or? Or do you, do you think he's uh, just on on another plane? Well, Gerard doesn't do a lot of analysis of Paul. Um, there are other New Testament scholars who who will bring Paul into it. Um, but I think uh, his explanation of the gospel, though there are times that he's focusing on particular ways of talking about the atonement, um, but he also recognizes the importance of equality um, for Jesus followers, right? You know, when in Galatians three, when he talks about there's neither, you know, Jew nor Greek or slave or free or male and female, like he, he recognizes that this is central to the gospel, um, that we have to recognize who are the people who are being marginalized, right. And who are the people in power. And we have to figure out a way to, um, to equalize that that's part of the gospel. Right. Mm -hmm. And so calling it, talking about it in terms of scapegoating is just another way to frame I think what Paul is talking about when it comes to equality um, and lifting up um, those who have been marginalized and and oppressed. Um, So, yeah, I think he he dovetails well with scapegoats um, and things like that, but it's not something that's necessarily um, overt in his writing. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, definitely there can be a, a, a temptation to kind of think of Paul as the spiritual guy and the gospels as the, the social the social guys you know one is one is one is up in the heavenly places and then the gospels are very earthy or whatever but mm-hmm. i think you know that 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 tends to ignore a lot of you know paul having a really strong social ethic and though he gets um i mean a lot of people would say that he is he holds women back or he is oppressive to women i don't think that is um a good reading of all of paul So I think that the fact that he has so many women involved in his ministry also shows that he's trying to um, lift the position of women where he can. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, he fits well in the scapegoat scheme, even though he um, doesn't he doesn't say it um, exactly in those Mm -hmm. terms.
Yeah. And we'd have we'd have to get into that landmine of uh, how do you interpret First Corinthians eleven, which is uh, well, is, is it eleven or twelve where he talks about the the head coverings or whatever? It's eleven, yeah, 11. 11. yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's a, that's a weird one, and uh, one for another day, maybe. But yes, one for another day. Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, thanks a million for for coming on to to speak about this. I um, greatly appreciate it, and uh, uh, really really think you've given us. Um, some food for thought in terms of you know the the social component of christianity so thanks thanks for that thank you